Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Jenna Friedman is a stand-up comedian, writer, and producer who's now about to star in her first late-night special for Adult Swim. Friedman has written for The Late Show with David Lederman, produced for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and taken her one-woman show to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. She later taped that show, American Cunt, as a special for CISO. It's available on audio on iTunes. She's about to keep me very woke, so let's get to it! Ah, Jenna Friedman, thank you so much for joining me on Last Things First. Hi, thanks for having me, Sean. (laughs) So Last Things First, you are in the middle of cutting your first pilot for Adult Swim. Yes, yes. How do you... It's a special. It's airing on February 18th. Oh, well, that's great. We have a date so people can tune in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm into it. I'm curious what the feedback will be. How, How does this... Because this is your first show where you get to be in front of the camera. Yes, You've been that behind has the scenes aired. Another... Yes, that ha- that is airing. Yes. Yeah. How does how does this feel compared to the first time you ever thought about having a TV show? Um, I don't know. <laughs> like when you when you envisioned when, I... when you first envisioned having a TV show when you were a kid. I never when, did though. You never I never did. did. Okay. So that's why I think it was hard for me to answer that question. I'm not like, I want a TV show. I just, I got into comedy from like a nerdy paper I wrote about uh, the political economy of improv in college. Mm. I like wrote a paper on Chicago's improv community in regards to like race, class, and gender. And what was it? What was the state of it back then? What year was this? 2005. Okay. Were they woke in 2005? No, no, it was the community was like separate but equal. Okay. There were there were improv and sketch groups that were like all black, all Asian, all like Hispanic because people, um, particularly like uh, people of color, did not feel supported in Chicago's mainstream improv community and were creating their own way outside of it. And the paper looked at women's achievements this is gonna get wonky yeah from like 1970 onwards okay and uh trace those specifically white middle class women and and it was like you know white middle class women have been able to achieve x y and z in this community because of social changes right um economic emergence of women more women in colleges, but specifically white middle class women, and so kind the of Amy Polers, the exactly, Tina exactly Amy Tina, exactly that generation, and so the paper was really advocating affirmative action in that world and looking at improv as kind of a re- reflection of like a stalled affirmative action agenda, and saying you know if we are just cognizant of how hard it is for minority men and women for X Y Z reason to thrive in this community, maybe we can make it more supportive for them. There was also like a tiny little page about sexual harassment in the workplace that Sharna read and um, canceled <laughs> my show. I, I took me off a Herald team. I never talked about it. But then a decade later, like Jezebel said something about uh, Chicago improv team and sexual harassment and Sharna not knowing anything. And that's bullshit. 
<laughs> because she knew. And I, it, I, my paper, it was so innocuous. I just basically said this is a work environment. It's a bar. It's a theater. Women are being trained to be strong on stage, but they're being objectified off stage. There's a disconnect. That's all I said. And you were, you were part of Improv Olympic yeah. then. Yeah, I was on a Herald team then. Improv is my rosebud. That's just all I ever wanted to do. So I, I was studying uh, anthropology, wrote this paper, mm-hmm. and then I was like doing improv at I.O., which was the coolest. It's like your, your own writer, director, performer at the same time. Their method of improv was so, so cool because it wasn't like – the rules were like very freeing. Right, because it was Sharna and Del Close. It came out of that it Del Close. It just was – yeah. I like UCB, but it is like the game, and I think there's so much more to comedy than just like the game. Right. And uh, it was just so cool, and they encouraged you to play at the height of your intelligence and create something out of nothing, and it was just such a – and the people that were teaching me had been there for 20 years just doing it, and it was the cool – and it was like before, I think, the big improv boom. So right. 2004, 2005. 2000, was before that people was 2004. really caught on. Yeah, and it was so cool, and I was like, I want to find a way to do this forever, and then when Sharna canceled my show, I got into stand-up because it just – was more portable and right. and with improv there it just felt so much more political because there were so few stages, and then um, I I just also wanted to write, and I was writing for like a political sketch show and that's how the American Girl satire came about, and then I just I put that up in New York in in Chicago, and um, I'm just naming names Steve Heisler, <laughs> right he was the he's the journalist in Chicago. Called it the worst comedic attempt of 2007. My play about American Girl Dolls as refugees, my little satire, and uh, and they they named people in my cast, and they were like, "We can't believe they let this happen." <laughs> I was 23, and I produced it on my own. A theater critic said it was like akin to a summer camp talent show because like we didn't have good set design. Then I brought it to New York, and they gave it four stars. <laughs> they were like, "This is a satire written by a female with like 10 women." Like, it's political. It hits every mark. It was the coolest experience. And I was like, bye, Chicago. I'm moving to New York. But from the very beginning, then, you had not a political agenda, per se, but you were, you definitely have activist tendencies from, totally. from the no, get-go. No, I mean, that was a thing. I remember when I was doing improv, they were so discouraging of having, like, an agenda. And I'm like, a agenda is just a voice or a point of view. That's just your agenda. Right. And um, I had it very strongly. Like, and I remember doing improv and like playing all sorts of characters, but all, every character was like a germaphobe. And I was like, oh, so that, you know, like every character, like, so you find your voice playing all the different characters. And um, yeah, and so back to your question after just that pontificating for five minutes, um, I never was like, I want to, I want to have my own show as much as I was just like, I want to say something. I want to say something about the commodification of American girls, you know. Uh, with American Girl Dolls, I want to say something about, and so. But you didn't have either. I want to be able to get my own sitcom, or I want to have do one woman shows, or no, no the one I want to I want to perform on Letterman, and then from that become a big headliner in comedy clubs. No, it was just like, there was no career. There was no professional agenda. I just wanted to survive. Like when I got to New York, I was like, "How do I? How do I make the? How do I make a living doing this?" And I looked at like Jesse Klein and Chelsea Pretty and uh, Morgan Murphy and all these women who are so funny, and they were like making money writing for shows. So then that's how I started submitting to write for shows. Okay, I loved doing stand up. I love the idea of just 
having an idea and putting it out there on stage, the immediacy of it, because everything in our world takes so long and there's so much development. But with stand-up, you just get on stage and you do it. So you're like putting your words into action right away. That I really liked about stand-up. I also felt like at the time, and I love how much our world has changed. I remember going to like a comedy show before I started doing stand-up and just seeing a bunch of different... I got in trouble for this once. But women on stage talking about like their weight issues and boyfriends and vaginas. And now I would say talk about whatever the fuck you want. But back then I felt like frustrated that either they were being encouraged to just talk about like sex and stuff because that's what, what people would only pay attention to or that there just wasn't more diversity in the, to con- than, uh, the subject matters of what they were saying. And so that fueled me to like want to get on stage and talk about things other than that. That's what I distinctly remember about you when I first met you in New York about a decade ago was that you were you were pushing boundaries. And I don't know that audiences were all they're still always, not. always <laughs> willing oh, they're to jump still on not. board with you. Who's Jenna Freeman? I don't know. Um <laughs> no, they're still not. I have a joke now about miscarriages and people freak out about it. But it's like I'm not telling it for shock value. I just the Republicans are literally legislating our bodies, and they, in, in three states now, there are laws that say that if you miscarry, you have to bury the right. tissue I, or whatever. I did read that recently. Yeah, they're not. I don't at know. Least if one of the states. Yeah, they've they've gone on the books. I don't know if they're like actually being enacted because it's so hard to to legislate that. But right, like, it's like some some states have had sodomy laws on the books, but they don't. Yeah, but they don't enforce it but the whole point for this one is to declare fetuses as people and to just make it harder for women who experience the, the most loss you could ever possibly experience to just make give them more barriers to you know seek help and medical care it's just sad and so i'm talking about it because we need to be talking about this stuff and it freaks people out <laughs> who is so who is the first mainstream star or platform to give you a voice um you know letterman uh when he hired me was the first time I remember like uh, we were writing all these little tosses to him running out on stage and be like, please welcome blah, 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 blah. And one of my first jokes I got on was like, please welcome second wave feminist Marxist Dave Letterman. And it was so funny to me that, that he was into that. Cause that was like the one part of the show he still like looked at. He would like his intro, his intro. <laughs> he was so checked out, but that those in the top tens were things mm-hmm. he still paid attention to. <laughs> and uh, that was funny to me in, in like 2010 or 11 that he would like even jokingly just like align with like a second wave feminist Marxist or something. Um, so that was like the first and then obviously The Daily Show and then uh, CISO. Rest in peace. Well, how long were you part of Letterman? Only a year. Okay. Yeah. And, and was at the time were they still working on 13 week contracts? Yeah, every single time I got renewed, I would, they would call me into my, their office and I would run down the hall and be like, I'm getting fired, I'm getting fired. And they were just like, hey, how are you doing? Everything's great. You're doing great. And then by the end of my time there, I remember nine months in, I said to Jeremy Weiner, wait, I forget his last name. He was so funny and wonderful. Uh, everybody would like freak out over certain things. It was really run weirdly. Um, but I, I remember saying, oh, it's so funny to be a fly on the wall and like watch you guys like panic over top tens or something. And he's like, you've been here nine months. You're not a fly in the wall. You're here. This is." And then um, it was uh, Wyatt Sinek who actually helped me get the Daily Show job. Okay. Yeah. He 
the field producer job opened. I didn't really know what it was. I didn't really want to go into production, but he was like, they they teach you how to direct. And uh, it did. It taught me so much. And so then I went over to The Daily Show and I uh, did that for three years and left when John left. What? Uh, so your, your one-year experience with Letterman, I don't want to completely gloss over it. Oh, you can. It was <laughs> tough. It was tough because was it Was it set up... Like monologue staff versus sketch. I was staff? sketch in top tens. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't monologue. Um, yeah, and it was really tough because there were so many people between us and Dave that you right. Didn't that was part he, of his infamy was that he didn't really even interact. Yeah, except so, with the head writers. Yeah, but even just barely. There were yeah. all these producers between them. I think he was checked out at that point. Um, it did feel like like a weekend at Bernie's scenario. Like you were just like writing for a dead person. Um, but I, I mean, I love his sensibility. I really didn't know him. I didn't engage with him, so I could never speak to any of the yeah or get a sense rumors of what, or truths about Dave. Not even on a personal level. Right. Just like what he liked comedically, what he found funny, how to you know. With the Daily Show, I had a sense of. Like, my comedic sensibility was very much in line with John's. I had a sense of what he was going to like, and it just makes your job easier when you know who you're writing for and what they like. Whereas Dave, it kind of a lot of times felt like throwing spaghetti against a wall and seeing what stuck. Right. Did you ever get a sense of what would stick? With? Well, there was a little... There's a mo- how many people listen to your podcast? <laughs> sometimes I just I don't go on podcasts. A lot more depending on what you say. <laughs> because they're so disarming where I'm just like talking to like my friend and right. then somebody I one time uh the Austin Chronicle wrote I had I, I was I was talking about how sometimes bad art can be inspiring. Okay. And they and it was on a podcast. I definitely feel that way about bad comedy can be inspiring. Totally. Totally. You That's see how somebody, I even got more exactly. interested in it was seeing bad. Versions. Exactly. Thank you. Because like when you see somebody so good, you're like, I could never do that. When you see somebody so bad, you're like, I can do that. Right. So but then they they wrote a half a page headline. I was performing in Austin and they called me the muse of mediocrity. And they said, like, Jenna takes joy in like other people's failings or some. The headline was just so sad and messed up. So I got afraid <laughs> to talk on podcasts or anything. Um, but, uh, oh yeah. So I'll just go What spaghetti sticks? Yeah, no, I know exactly what I'm going to say. There was a moment of shuffle with the head writers while I was there. There's a little drama and somebody else came in to be the head writer for a moment. And when that happened. Other than the brothers? Yes. Okay. And I, yes. Okay. But when that happened, the person who came in had a a sensibility closer to mine. So my jokes were getting to Dave. And they were getting on. And it was like nine months into being there. It was the first time that I was like, oh, this is what it's like to actually write for a show. And one of the bits that got on, he played it so much. I was getting paid for it like two years after. It was on Mardi Gras. And Chris Christie had just given a speech about how marriage should be between a man and a woman. And I had – it was the dumbest idea. But just during his speech, we built this little – piece where we had this poor guy who was a Chris Christie body double that we'd call in <laughs> to do stuff mm-hmm. behind a green in front of a green screen to be your Chris Christie. Yeah, and you put Christie's face on it and this guy's body and it looked so real because Christie's like a big guy so he doesn't really move much. Mm-hmm. And then this guy, you could just plop him in there, sorry. <laughs> and um I think that's the sound it makes, plop. Oh, I'm awful. And uh so but the joke was just like 
uh, it's Mardi Gras, you know, Chris Chris is giving a speech, let's check in, and he, and, and the guy flashes, he's like, marriage is be- between a man and a woman, then the guy f- lifts up his chest, right. and, or lift up, lifts up his shirt and flashes everybody, and then we threw beads, and one actually got over his head. Um, but, like, that was, like, the intersection of what I found funny, which is, like, making fun of somebody who's anti-gay marriage, and what Dave found funny at the time, Dave did enjoy fat jokes, sorry, mm-hmm. but Dave... That was something that he found funny. Yeah, poking fun of Chris Christie f- yeah. for his weight. Yeah. But but I rationalized it as not just being a fat joke. I was like, well, there's a political undercurrent. Anyway, he played it all the time. He took the setup out and just played the shot of Chris Christie <laughs> flashing everybody. It just was so fun for him. And I got paid every time he aired it. That's awesome. Yeah. So you go from writing to field producing. Which is still writing. Right. Field producing at The Daily Show was writing and directing field pieces. So what was your first field piece? Uh, my first tour with Sam B, which is, I think, why I ended up staying there, because she was awesome. One was on election night, um, 2012, and then the other one was one of my favorites I ever produced there. It was on Women in the Military, and um, it was when uh, there was a ban on women serving in combat positions, and I felt that it was a civil rights issue, and... Um, the guys at the show were like, "Oh, we don't really think it's an issue, but okay, if you want to, if you want to go, do it." And Sam was like, "I'll do it with you." And we learned so much too, because on its face, you're like, "Well, women might not be as strong as men. Maybe they shouldn't be on the front lines." Then you do any research and you talk to people, and you're like, "Oh, women are already on the front lines. The front lines now are Afghanistan. The rules have changed, and these antiquated laws are making it more dangerous for everyone." And on top of that, they're creating a culture of women as a second class, second class citizens in the military. Women can't be promoted if they can't be in combat. And so we learned all of this. And halfway through production, Leon Panetta lifted the ban on women in the front line. So the military caught up to us before the piece even came out. And we had to we had already shot half of it. And it was called like a crash piece. So instead of getting like three weeks to produce it and edit it and everything, we had like three days. And we just like worked around the clock. And because Sam and I had found this kind of joke when we were there, like this group mind, we we talked with this one old guy who had never been in the military who was like, women shouldn't be on the front lines. And I think I – because it wasn't one of the questions, but I think I remember like writing bromance question mark on a card and and like flash it to sam and we had this back and forth and so we had enough coverage that we could recut the piece to be just about how women in combat disrupts bromance <laughs> and it was just a really really funny piece yeah because then it's then it doesn't matter about the policy it's exactly and that was like to Sam's credit. And it was, there were little things like, it was just like the kind of female humor that I had wanted to do. And I think it was like before Schumer's show even came out, like this kind of humor that I feel like was ignored for a really long time. Um, and it was just so fun. Was what was Wyatt correct that you got to learn everything? Oh my God, yes. He was a mentor there from the beginning and... Um, yeah, and everybody I worked with, my boss there, Tim Greenberg, just was a consultant on the Adult Swim show. And, you know, it's just, yeah, it was great. It was the, be- it was the best job ever. Because I know you you did a lot of pieces after Sam left with Jessica, too, right? Yeah, everyone. Well, yeah. Not, I didn't do any with Oliver because he was, like, kind of on the way out as I came in. 
And uh, I didn't do any with Jason Jones, but everyone else I had worked with. Did you? And you said you left when John left. Yeah. Was that on purpose? Yeah. Or? Yeah. I just didn't want to do that anymore. I love that job, but and I just was. I, I had American Cunt. Can I say yeah? Yes. I had American Cunt, which that was your I, one one woman show that you took yeah, to Edinburgh. Yeah. So I I went to Edinburgh right when. Like okay. right after the reason I didn't do a month in Edinburgh was because it was like John's last week. So right after that, I went to Edinburgh and did the show and then I toured the show. I just I just was done being a field producer. So even going to Sam's show then didn't have appeal for the same reason, right? Yeah, no, I just wanted to do my own thing. Okay. I had worked for other people for four years and I just wanted to do my own thing. So after I left that show, I, you know, I did American Cunt and then this year I've been developing the Adult Swim Project. Well, how did it feel though to jump straight to doing a full one hour show with you on stage from being so much a part of a producing a daily show? Well, um, that's a good question. I think, uh, you know, I've been doing stand-up all along in New York. Right, but just here and, and then, there. Yeah. And showcase and, sets, mostly, right? Yeah. And so right after I left the show, I mean, I think I had like a week or something. I was like trying to just, leading up to it, like tour, just do like hours. Like before Letterman, I was just doing stand-up and I was doing hours and touring. So it wasn't like the first time I'd ever done an hour. It was just like the first time in a while. Right. And then... um uh yeah well with american cunt i just don't miss that name um i had i I was only there for two weeks and i had 13 reviewers come to 12 shows and the first couple i was writing it as i was going and i had some really bad reviews but being having like a jewish mother or just somebody around me who's always hypercritical like a reviewer saying like my set was like an overstuffed burrito with too many jokes or someone said that actually um it didn't bother me as much because like i'm used to criticism but so i also could you fold that criticism into because you were writing it I as did. you were going it, to go well okay i'll take I, some jokes I did. out or i did it was actually really helpful and so the version of american cunt that CISO aired like at the end of that year a lot of the workshopping had to it got to where it was because of the edinburgh run and by the end of edinburgh i had like a solid show and then as the election was changing, I, 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 you know, I tailored the show to what was going on. Um, How did that feel, too, though? Because, you know, the UK and Edinburgh specifically having all of those critics reviewing your show is such a difference from performing in America, where you might have just a handful of people who actually write critically. It was. I love it. I just. Like I. You mentioned Steve Heisler from a decade. Like there's. Oh, there's that, one per, But there's like. But yeah. to my point though, there's just a handful of people. That who criticism are was crazy about, though. <laughs> I just want to say his criticism, and if he's listening, like he was always really nice to me. But that was. You don't. You don't make a category that doesn't exist to shame a 23 year old girl making a political satire, producing it on her own. Like for the first time, that's just not kind. Like, uh, and that's what they did. And but you persisted. I persisted. <laughs> yeah, but it was. I mean, like, it was. I I was so depressed when that came out. People, the the review was comedy didn't review it. Theater reviewed it. Okay, for no reason. That's what I'm. But that's what I'm saying too. Is like, yeah. There's only a handful of people across the country who are taking serious critical looks at comedy. Yeah, but I don't even think of that as a serious critical look. Honestly, I think of that as like 
that town is so insular and nobody's going to go after Second City. So I was just like a sitting target. I was just some random girl who had no representation or anything that they could just criticize to like get a feather in their cap for being critical. Mm-hmm. I really like, and I, I'm not just saying that cause I got a bad review. I've got like definitely my Edinburgh run when I first started, the show was a mess and the reviews were like, the show's a mess. And then it got a lot better, but that play, it was just like, don't even whatever. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, you can still feel I'm like that like over a decade ago, I'm like heartbroken by how it's funny at this point, but it was just like so shocking. Um, yeah, I, I feel like part of that is because there's so few people writing about it, though, is what yeah, my point is. Yeah, and it's also... So, so when you do get a critical, when you do get a negative... I know I've gotten this feedback myself because of that, that when I write negatively about somebody, they take it so much harder because it's not like there's dozens of reviews they can point to. If yeah. you Google them and they get my review, sometimes that might be the only critical voice they hear yeah i mean criticism's really it's its own thing and i think it serves a purpose and it's also like it's makes you stronger as an artist to you know the the cool thing about stand-up at least is like you get criticism every time you go on stage the audience will tell you right um immediate feedback you get immediate feedback uh and i do there is a an element of just it's really helpful to hear what people have to think and uh I think it helps you evolve. And to Steve's credit, and that reviewer's credit in Chicago, they called the show like disingenuous. They said, no, they said it was like too like schmaltzy or something. And we did change one thing in the show. And the thing that they didn't like was our final song was like, we know this play may be a buzzkill, so donate to these local nonprofit, refugee, whatever. And then in the second round when we brought it to the New York Fringe, we never apologized. The final song was like, um, a sales pitch for the line of refugee girl dolls with B-U-Y signs in every language. And it was, like, really fun and, like, just, like, buy things from us. Like, you know, just fun. And it did teach me a very important lesson about, like, satire, which is don't apologize. Understand what you're doing. Make sure it's bulletproof and don't apologize. Did you feel like you would really learn that lesson when you did the video with the making the murderer attorney? What lesson? About, like, here's how to do effective satire. And- I didn't think that that was satire. Um, I think, uh, well, with him, I just wanted to be careful because at the end of the tunnel, there was, like, a dead woman. So I just wanted right. to be respectful. I didn't think that was satire as much as presenting a side of him that I hadn't seen because he wasn't in the documentary. Okay. And I did feel like he was... I feel like Stephen Avery was completely is completely guilty and that and it was just kind of a very interesting ethical quandary because it's like if somebody is a murderer and you don't have evidence to like to like prosecute them and you let them free and somebody dies do you have blood on your hands because that's what happened he he killed her (laughs) we don't right but so so if you're gonna go in and you're gonna do a video about this, or you're going to make a, a field piece for the Daily Show, or you're going to do a one woman show. You just show, have to know your shit. Or you're going to do this pilot for Adult Swim. Yeah, that you're bulletproof. I mean, people will always find things to, you know, and we're all, and nobody's perfect, and we're all like one tweet away from getting fired. I should check mine right now. But <laughs> I think the more you do it, there's a line. Sometimes we all cross it. Um, 
But I think the more you do it, the more you know where the line is and how not to cross it. I've definitely, I have stand up from 2007 that will resurface that people will be upset about that I'm sorry. But, you know, when you're first starting out, you're just trying to find the line. The uh, the special American Cunt, mm-hmm. I know since CISO's no more, some, did you have full ownership of that? I had full ownership so you of can the decide. audio. So it is, on, it is on iTunes now. Okay. But what about the video? I don't Where does that go? Because some people know. have. Some people have moved Somebody their stuff. Amazon. Me if I wanted to put it on, it was on Amazon. It might still be. I have to check. But I didn't really. I love the audio. I love for people to listen to stand up sets. I didn't. I don't need them to see it. Okay. Um. So they can check it out on iTunes and buy it and download yeah. it and yeah. all of that. Okay. And there are segments in that show that, out of context, got me in trouble. I did like a bit about men shorter than me. People got men got upset about it. I'm not making fun of men shorter than me. I'm making fun of the fact that that's the one area we can't joke about. And that they are proving my point. when Right. By being so email snowflakes. I don't. As you will. Look, no. I mean. <laughs> Sensitive. It was just, it was in, it was not a joke about like it wasn't a joke about the physicality of men. It was just a joke about like the one thing we're not allowed to make fun of, which at the time I felt was that. As a, as a follower of your Twitter, though, I feel like you're running into more things that people are too sensitive about. Oh, you want to talk about sexual assault? Sexual assault or Russian propaganda. Oh, well, that's different. Or, I mean, the sex assault stuff is tricky because I'm learning to, I, I think, like, it, there's a generational divide between, you know, Gen X, Gen Y, and then, like, the last generation that's going to, you know, die off after, like, a nuclear fire or global <laughs> warming. Um like the second wave feminists or like the feminists who are like in their 50s being like, whatever, someone jerks off in front of you. I'm thinking of like Catherine, Divin, whatever her name is. Deneuve? Yeah, Deneuve, who like went out and she was like, why is everyone so sensitive? It's just masturbation. It's just masturbation. It's just men. Men just masturbate. Yeah. If they make you watch. Yeah. It's nice. Maybe <laughs> they buy you something. Um, but and then like my generation that's like, yeah, nobody should masturbate in front of anybody without their consent. But also like if somebody wants to fuck you and you're at their house and it's late and you've been drinking and they took you out and (laughs) wait for the bomb. (laughs) That's not, and you don't want to do that. Just say, I don't want to do that and get the fuck out. Right. You know, like people do feel entitled to, to sleep with somebody. If unfortunately, if they wine and dine you and you're in their apartment and they go down on you, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm not saying that that's right, right, but, but there is a level of like, are we just, as my generation, just not talking to girls younger than us enough about, like, like how to say no, how to say no and consent and like, or I mean, I don't know. It's it's tough because I'm not right. I just or the casting couch. Which it's is a different all form of it's that. all different. I mean, it's so tricky. It's so tricky to navigate. And it's such a cool moment where, like, everyone's coming out and sharing the stories and you want to support victims. Right. Um, it's it's super cool. It's just great. I I wish that we had conversations about power dynamics when I was coming up because there was so much of that that nobody was talking about until that girls episode with Lena Dunham where she talked about it and it was the first time I'd seen that in like um, pop culture where it was really just a discussion. Did you see that episode? I didn't see that one. The premise I was... I also still have... I, midway through one Mississippi, so I haven't watched that episode either. Oh, I haven't watched that episode. But the premise was, you know, a powerful man uh, who she admires 
has like a sex scandal brewing around him. Some women claim blah, blah, blah. She goes to confront him. Then like they become friends. She learns his side of things and starts to kind of have a mutual friendship and understanding with him. And then at the very last minute, he gives her like a Philip Roth, a signed Philip Roth book, which is like such a perfect like kind of like that dirty like oh they can't they do have things that i want or like mm-hmm. that are not sexual that you know and then he's like lie down with me and then he whips out his dick and he's like will you touch it and she touches it and so many of my guy friends were emailing me like oh my god did, why did she touch his dick and they're like why did he whip out his dick and uh and i was like because he knew what he could get away with because that's the thing it's like not even like with serial predators but just with men who just do this all the time you just know where the line is you know what you can get away with and like how to act to get what you want and why did she touch his dick i don't know because like maybe she froze and just did whatever she wanted she had to do to get out of there safely like is that is that what people talk about when they talk about grooming too i don't know part of the power dynamic uh oh yeah like i'm when you say grooming i think like sandusky and all that kind of crazy shit i i don't know about any of that all i do know is that like um, I guess I was somewhat triggered by that article in that on that website <laughs> that I had uh, never heard of, and it just like it was very because I I see it, and I again I could be wrong, but it's like we're at this moment where there are like actual rapists and predators and creepy dudes and then jerks, right? In in all sorts of you know professional pools, and there's like the sifter where we're trying to sift them out. And uh, who are the jerks and who are the monsters? Yeah, the Al Franken thing is confusing, you know. Um, I think, yeah, that is very confusing. You know, when you, um, if your brand as a public persona is um, to be like a truth teller and you gaslight people accusing you of something you did, or if you make a million dollars on a book about uh, love and romance and then you don't really um, practice what you preach. I think those are totally fair grounds to call somebody out. Um, there's just something, I think, in the writing of that one piece that just felt like it wasn't helping. It wasn't illuminating, you know, what the issue was. It was a little bit more, it just felt a little bit more like a gossipy, like, uh, conversation you'd have with your friends and not yeah. something that would be picked up by every news source <laughs> as, like, an example of sexual assault. So that was just my only thoughts on it. Not on her story, just on the way it was presented. But you know, do you do you feel there's a, there's a better way to, for lack of a better term, make people woke? I think the cat person article is a really good example of like an anonymous account that like shocked everybody. Of just like, well, you know, this is like, did you read that? Yeah. So to me, that was a really good example and and, and very powerful and effective. Uh, because it wasn't, again, talking about like issues that are more black and white, you know, like rape and assault, but it was talking just about like male entitlement, um, weird sexual encounters. What am I agreeing to? And why am I agreeing to Why it? am I agreeing? And it was really powerful because of the anonymity. And I think that the story like this could have been equally powerful if not defending anyone but just if it was more anonymous because then it, it opens it up to a discussion and makes it less about the person now i don't want to defend the person who was a subject of it but at the same time it like changes things when you have it it, it made me just feel mortified for him because it to me it just felt like a weird sexual experience sure. but again i'm 35 now i'm not 20 and i've you know had so many of my own experiences to inform how i process other people's behavior when i was 20 i I do think there's a naivete 
to going up to somebody's apartment after a date and, uh, you know, like how to navigate that scenario that 15 years of experiences have taught me like how to navigate it where, you know, that person didn't necessarily know and was upset when she found out, oh man, this famous guy just wants to fuck me. He doesn't see me as a person or want me to be his girlfriend or want to treat me respectfully. Like I, I, these are interesting discussions to have, but it's just like, it's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. It's just a crazy time. And it's definitely dumb to have them on Twitter. Well, that, but it, at the same time, that's how Dan Harmon was able to muster an apology. Yeah, but because yeah. because he was called out on Twitter. How much money did Megan lose, like, from not having that be a positive experience? You know, how much money do women lose? I think it's like that's a whole separate issue. But it's like when you're not supported in your workplace, right. or like you're not promoted. Well, that's that's the larger discussion of like how many women are are chastised out of the game or or just yeah or just discouraged i remember there was discouraged one, and one so they're like well i guess i'm not gonna i guess i'm not gonna write continue. for sitcoms anymore totally. i thought that was gonna be my life and i guess it's not going to be anymore because if this is what i have to put up with yeah i remember hearing bother? a comedy booker said that if a woman walked on stage with like high-heeled boots immediately she wouldn't get whatever and i remember hearing that and I can't confirm it because it wasn't a, a first-person account, but that person likes still book stuff. And it just made me so sad that so much misogyny – There's so, it's so entrenched in people's views of you know women, I think. And it's hard to parcel it out. And it does you know, bleed into all the other elements of like you know, people's right. emotional health and their career opportunities. How great is it then that you get to be making this special for Adult Swim, which is – gotten a lot of blowback for its lack of support for women uh well you know um we'll see (laughs) too soon to tell because it hasn't aired yet it hasn't aired yet they've been very supportive (laughs) of me so far we um fingers crossed because it's not uh completely picture locked yet but the version of the show that at this moment that's i think going out i'm i'm proud of it says a lot of things i want to say and uh, it's cool if this is what the network puts out, that they're putting it out. Well, I look forward to seeing it. Thanks. Would you have advice for the 20-year-olds that are coming up today as a 30 I think something? I think the best advice is talk to older women, talk to your peers, talk to the men that you're seeing. And, and if – and, you know, don't be afraid to say no. Don't be afraid to say what you want before you get in a situation that might feel out of control, um, communicate what you want with people. It's scary and it's hard and you think that they'll pick up on your cues, but men are sometimes kind of stupid. So that was just a whispering <laughs> to them. I didn't mean to tell you that. We're all stupid. I'm sorry. No, we are all stupid, but men Sometimes they have just a, can't read your mind. Men have a different kind of stupid. And if you don't want to, you know, it's just tough. I've been, we've all been there, but just... Um, you know. No, I, I I appreciate when I get called out. I've been called out in this podcast before, and I I appreciate it because sometimes I don't even know when I'm being stupid. Yeah, and I mean, I could get called out for being victim, like you know, victim. There's like p- taking personal responsibility, and then there's victim blaming, and it's a really I don't know where the line is at this point, and I'm finding it, and I just want. You know, you want people to just feel like they can be the best versions of themselves and evolve. And that's hopefully what most of us are, you know, here for. So, yeah, communicate, I guess. 
Well, thanks for having this discussion with me. It was so funny. Oh, my God. So many jokes, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I look forward to watching your first of hopefully many specials. Thanks. I'm excited about it. Thanks a lot, Jenna. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first.